For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. I'm Brian Boitler, Editor-in-Chief of Crooked.com, and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. For today's episode, I spoke with Vanita Gupta, President and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and former head of the Civil Rights Division at the U.S. Department of Justice under Barack Obama. She joined me to discuss the civil rights movement's resistance to the Trump administration and the threats Trump poses to the rule of law and America's democratic institutions. If there's tampering with the Mueller investigation, I think we all need to be out in the streets every in every community. I hope you enjoy it. Vanita Gupta, thanks for agreeing to have this conversation. Great to be here. Uh, so we're sitting in your office at the headquarters of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, of which you are president. So how did you end up here? So I ended up here uh, after stepping down at the Justice Department on January 19th, 2017. I took some time off uh, and wanted to figure out what I wanted to do next. And very soon, just days into uh, post-inauguration, the travel ban came out of the Trump administration, and it just felt like from there on, there was one assault on civil and human rights after another. And I just knew I couldn't sit on the sidelines as much as there was a part of me that wanted to uh, crawl under a sofa for the next <laughs> four years. Um, and so I, w- I wanted to go someplace that was multi-issue, that had a real platform for organizing uh, and leadership in the civil rights community. And this was the place to be. It's uh, the nation's coalition of 200 plus civil rights organizations cross issues, cross communities, and it was the place to be at the center of the resistance to uh, the Trump administration's rollbacks, but also a place to really push and continue to push for justice. I definitely want to get to to the Trump question and how he's sort of shaped uh, your, your, your views of your work, but you were at the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department before this. So what was, you know, the sort of background that got you interested in civil rights as a as a vocation to begin with? It's hard to figure out whether the, there was the seminal moment in my life, but I, um, you know, I, my family moved to London when I was four years old at a time when there was a rise of the skinhead movement, and um, we were the butt of hate attacks um, in various places, and I just grew up very conscious of being a racial minority in England, and then um, came of age with a lesbian older sister and a real desire to continue to focus on social justice issues and just became an activist for, you know, a variety of reasons that are hard to kind of completely disentangle. Um, and I went to, uh, after graduating from call from law school was at the NAACP legal defense fund doing criminal justice reform at a time, frankly, when mass incarceration was just the trend all over the country and then went to the ACLU and became its deputy legal director um, and was presented with this unprecedented opportunity to go to the Justice Department to head up the Civil Rights Division just weeks after Michael Brown had been killed in the streets of Ferguson. And the Justice Department launched the investigation of the Ferguson Police Department. Uh, And it was a time when the president and the attorney general were really focused on some of the core issues that I had been working on and uh, launched right in for a fairly consequential time for the division on these issues. What what does the fight for civil rights in America mean to you today in a modern context? You know, I think a lot of people think of uh, the civil rights movement as something that happened 50 years ago and, and, you know, um, uh, are some of the leaders of of that movement have passed away? Some are still with us, but it's it's it never stopped, and it has a sort of different form today than it did then, and and different focuses. And uh, so, how did you see those as you started your career, and how have they changed as a result of the election and any other forces in American life? Really, yeah, I mean, a lot of people think of the civil rights movement as these black and white photographs from mm-hmm. the '60s, in particular, and the reality is that the fight. And the movement for civil rights is very alive today. And in some ways, um, this 
administration has kind of revived the the uh, the fact that we can't take all of those that progress that was made for granted. Um, it is a multiracial, multiethnic, multi-issue movement. It is uh, being led by uh, young folks as well as you know seasoned civil rights lawyers. It's taking place in the streets right now. It's taking place uh, in the courts. It's taking place in the media. I, I, to me, there is such a vibrancy about the movement um, today, and it is a. It's always been a struggle. The fight for civil rights has never. The road for civil rights has never been a straightforward one or an easy one. Um, I think that right now there's no question that the the fight for civil rights is a particularly challenged one in light of the pushbacks and the the revival of white supremacy, the kind of official sanctioning of it in many ways uh, in its official place in, in the rhetoric. But I think that in some ways Charlottesville and the travel ban and the rescission of DACA and the pardon of Joe Arpaio, these are all issues that are taking place in real time before our very eyes and with official imprimatur of the federal government, uh, at least in the administration. And there's no question that these are issues that are top of mind for a lot of people who never considered themselves activists before 2016 and who are now coming out of the woodwork to try to fight for a a vision of America that is inclusive and just. uh, And the attacks are real. They're having a real harm on a lot of communities uh, but it has been really inspiring to see millions of people who I think we're taking a lot of our democratic institutions and the rule of law and civil rights for granted say, we've got to stand up for something here. A lot of the fights that we're having today are bigger than just, you know, one fight. I mean, this is when when we see the attack on LGBT communities, when we see the attack on dreamers, uh, you, you know, the the suppression on voting rights and the like. This is all part of a bigger narrative being pushed out of this administration that is narrow and mean-spirited about who belongs in this country. And I just think that this administration is on the wrong side of history on this. And But it is feels like the kind of last gasps of, a, of an America that is majority white is ignoring the changing demographics in this country and is seeking to promote um, a a vision of America that doesn't match what a lot of people really believe America to be, which is a country that is always striving to be just and inclusive despite our nation's, you know, original sin on, on slavery. And so the dreamers right now in the fight for the dreamers for the leadership conference and the civil rights community is much bigger than an immigrant's rights issue. It really is more fundamentally now come to embody like a fight to save the soul of our country. And that's why I think you're seeing groups like LGBT rights groups and reproductive freedom groups and groups across communities really pushing to fight to protect the dreamers because of what this fight has come to mean for for so many of our communities. And can I just ask you then, uh, you know, as, as we're recording this, we're just uh, a couple hours after the, you know, the seemingly the last best legislative shot to protect dreamers did not overcome a filibuster, a Republican filibuster in the Senate. Um, so what happens next, both as, as far as you can gather inside the political system and in the, in the greater advocacy community? Well, I think the organizing is going to continue. I mean, dreamers have been in the halls of Congress every day, but more importantly, kind of rallying in the streets with a lot of us, you know, all the time. And there's an incredible organizing effort inside the Beltway now. You know, the question will be, um, is Trump going to ready up ICE to start deporting children out of the country? And um, and I, there are going to continue to be legislative efforts to to push forward. But Trump has clearly said that he wants his so-called four pillars um, to move forward. Two of which are cutbacks to legal immigration and are so deeply offensive uh, to so many of us. And uh, you know, the question will now be called in you know whether he will and Congress will seek to extend. Um, provisions to protect the dreamers at least temporarily until there's uh, a, a momentum for for I- encouraging new legislation. But uh, you know, again, 
this is this is a, a solvable problem. It was a crisis that was created by this administration. He said Congress should fix it. And now at every turn that Congress has tried, Trump has rejected the fixes. And at some point, that needs to be called into question. There are 87% of Americans, including a lot of Trump voters, believe that the dreamers need to be protected. And I think that there will be electoral consequences for allowing this problem that Trump manufactured to go unheeded. Was it inevitable or is it just like a, a fact of human nature or what, that, you know, there's a, there's a very optimistic side of that story and a very pessimistic side of that story, which is that right now you're seeing these, these, um, you know, arms of this movement flourishing stronger in some ways than they've ever been, but that it took this huge setback to awaken that, um, was that inevitable? And, you know, as this moment that we're living through ideally gives way to one where civil rights aren't under as much of a threat, how do you maintain that sense of purpose so that you you don't catch yourself flat-footed the way that maybe a lot of the leaders of this movement feel like they were flat-footed by the election? A lot of people have been fighting for civil rights through thick times, thin times, good times, bad times. And And it has never been easy. I do think that the reality of the history of this country is that our progress hasn't been linear. It's often been in zigs and zags and fits and starts. And there is nothing more powerful as an organizing uh, motivator than uh, kind of a common, uh, you know, opposing force like Trump has been for, um, for civil rights advocates. And I, I, am I, you know, I think that fundamentally civil rights work requires a sense of hope and optimism. Uh, you can't do this work unless you have that kind of hope and optimism. I think the shame will be if we do all of this organizing and there's all of this energy and it just dissipates and isn't sustained. It has been very clear what the consequences of low voter turnout were in 2016. You can see what the consequences of high voter turnout, particularly among voters of color, is in the Virginia election, where there was a sound rebuke by voters of color who turned out in much higher numbers than they did in 2016 in Virginia to basically say that Ed Gillespie's campaign running off of a Trump playbook was not going to carry the day. And so the the onus is on all of us to be able to continue that energy. But I will also say we are not through the thick of this at all by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, we are really seeing the corrosion of fundamental democratic norms in a way that we haven't in recent times. You've got a, a, a president who is more than willing to excoriate federal judges who issue opinions that he doesn't agree with, who has completely... Uh, uh, ignored and disrespected the Justice Department and the FBI's investigative function while he is under investigation by them. Um, He has, uh, you know, been refused to unequivocally denounce white supremacists marching in his name in Charlottesville. He has called countries shithole countries, uh, kind of stuff that just is, um, each one of these would have brought a prior president down perhaps, but this is where these the corrosion of these norms is is happening before our very eyes. And the organizing that we have to do to translate this, to, to reject what is happening right now, that, that work remains very alive and well and present. And so, um, you know, we will have to sustain this energy so that it actually carries and makes a difference uh, in our body politic. I, I sort of imagine that a lot of the work of the leadership conference right now is sort of trying to prevent the the zigs from zagging too much, like a bit of a, it's like a, a lot more rear guard work than maybe you imagined it would be before the election and the, the you know, the, the fact that the leadership of the government changed. Um, at the same time, I, I also imagine that there have been unexpected success stories where maybe civil rights advocates have remained on the offense um, or even logged victories that they didn't expect despite the new administration. Can you just give listeners like a lay of the land of what the what the big, biggest challenges, what the most, you know, disappointing or serious setbacks have been? And also where maybe even if it's at, you know, um, state, local level, where the, you know, where the optimism is, where the green shoots yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think federally, the civil rights community and the leadership conference uh, has been pushing back in kind of the the 
the arm of the resistance. We've got, we just issued a timeline a, a couple of weeks ago that documented the rollbacks coming out of this administration on civil rights. And that list is long. Um, and so here in Washington, the fight has been to stop the bleeding, to, to try to do what we can. But we also were able to really successfully, through a series of tactics, including litigation and organizing, uh, end up disbanding the Pence-Kovac Commission, a commission that was set up to justify Trump's unsubstantiated claims that three to five million people had voted illegally in 2016. Uh, it was pe- populated by a dream team of vote suppressors, And so that was resistance and defensive work, but that was a very big win for the civil rights community. And the leadership conference was was proud as a coalition to be able to to win that. And that is important. But, you know, the rollbacks from Jeff Sessions and this Justice Department continue that. On the other hand, there is a lot of affirmative work, particularly at the state and local level right now, which is hopeful. And it's where there are wins at the state and local level. So on voting rights, for instance, there are states adopting automatic voter registration, trying to have same-day registration and early voting. There are states that are continuing, despite what Jeff Sessions is doing here in Washington with the federal system, that are continuing to push against mass incarceration policies, reforming their criminal justice systems, uh, and, and trying to make them more fair. There is a push locally and kind of, I think, in some ways, a response to what's happening in Washington around um, protecting LGBTQ rights locally, given the assault on those here in Washington. So the leadership conference is looking at the strategic places to engage at the state level uh, and while pushing back really hard and forcefully at the federal level to be able to try to preserve and protect the gains that that have been made. Um, and I think right now the hope is in the organizing work that's happening all over the country around some of these issues. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Vanita Gupta after this break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Quip. When it comes to your health, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day. True. Quip knows that. They've combined dentistry and design make a better electronic toothbrush. I love my Quip. I like my Quip too. My Quip just ran out of battery, so I'm going to replace the battery, but it's been fantastic. It lasts for months and months. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of... Sorry, John, I wasn't paying attention. What was that about uh, just the right amount of vibrations in a slimmer design? Can you continue? Well... Uh, it's a fraction of the cost of bulkier traditional electronic So you don't brushes. like a bulkier vibrating design? <laughs> you know what I like more? You like a slimmer vibrating nope, design? Nope, even more than that. What? The guiding pulses that alert you when to switch sides, making brushing the right amount of effort. So you like guiding pulses in your slimmer design vibrations? Guiding pulses out on ABC at 2 p.m.? <laughs> you know what Tommy likes? He likes the Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel anywhere, whether it's going in your gym bag or carry-on. I use that cover when we travel. Yeah, that tube thing they send you that you travel with is perfect. I, it's perfect. Because it's really it. gross that your toothbrush just kind of like hangs flies out, flies around yes. in your dop kit. It's not, not good. No, no the, the, I will say the Quip has been one of the coolest things we got in the mail. <laughs> when we, like, you know, it's just like, <laughs> I know. that's awesome. I signed up. Yep, me too. I gave, I'm I'm I gave, one, to, I gave one to a certain New Yorker reporter. And because the thing that cleans your mouth should also be clean, Quip subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist recommended schedule, delivering new brush heads every three months for just $5 including free shipping worldwide. Quip is backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. That's quite a network. It's a lot. It's well, a lot. Don't they piss just, off 10,000 dental professionals. They love the right amount of vibrations in a slimmer design, uh, the guiding, guiding pulses in the mount. <laughs> Most toothbrushes don't get named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year, yeah. but Quip did. Yeah, I bet it did. <laughs> Find out for yourself why. I think we know why. <laughs> what? <laughs> We know why. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash crooked convos right now, get you'll, get, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash crooked convos. Spelled G E T Q U I P.com slash crooked convos. So we're recording this on uh, Thursday, February 15th, I believe. Um, just today. Uh, I believe it was the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals um, enjoined or rejected another uh, version of the of the travel ban. Um, a, there was a bit of a row between a Republican Senator Chuck Grassley and his former colleague Jeff Sessions over the Justice Department's kind of entrance into the, like the legislative train to to try to advance a criminal justice reform 
Um, uh, at something that I was in the room for and just loved uh, watching and bearing witness to. I, have I to would I, I would love to hear that. Uh, I would love to hear that story. The the, the third element of that that I was um, going to bring up was the Department of um, Homeland Security kind of uh, interjected itself into a legislative process to try to kill a an effort to to legalize Dreamers. Um, that I, I feel like those three things. You know, it's it's just it's indicative of the Trump era that they all happen at once, and that they all seem to to get at what you were talking about before about um, about sort of the erosion of norms. They're all they're they're all linked in some way, I think, to to this administration's just contempt for process and for kind of you know institutions staying in their lanes and doing the work that they're supposed to do. Is that how you see all of that? And and and, you know, to the extent that you could give us some flavor for what happened between Jeff Grassley and, <laughs> and Jeff Sessions, the better. Yeah. You know, obviously, every administration ha- is going to have their policy priorities. It's why elections matter. And so I'm, it's not to say that the Trump administration doesn't have a right to push its priorities. It obviously does. It just so happens that many of those priorities have been crafted by folks like Steve Bannon and, and Stephen Miller, who's still at the White House. And um, are are hateful and have uh, have a lot of nefarious impact on communities. But I do think there is something distinctively different outside of just pushing a set of policy priorities. There is a fundamental disrespect as for democratic institutions and norms and the rule of law. And I uh, that I think is what is most worrisome. And it's time for more Republicans to stand up for the rule of law. I, there are uh, I think that establishment Republicans are watching this happen and are um, are kind of privately appalled but not publicly speaking out in enough numbers about what what's happening right now. But on like if you take today in this confluence and frankly for the leadership conference, it has felt like almost every day, but particularly in the beginning, it was like always at Friday night at 5 mm-hmm. p.m. where there would be, I remember this one Friday in August where um, Sebastian Gorka resigned, Trump pardoned uh, Sheriff Arpaio, and, uh, um, oh, and the and the there was the transgender ban in the military that that got, you know, uh, reinforced by the administration. It was all after 5 p.m. on a Friday night. And it's just that, like, the kind of brutalizing, you know, policy impacts of learning about the stuff late. They, today was an instance where, you know, both the policy priorities and the fundamental disrespect for the rule of law kind of come together. What was so interesting to me is I was in the Senate Judiciary Committee markup this morning at the hearing. listening to Chuck Grassley, a person who the civil rights community often uh, is most deeply and fundamentally not aligned with. He is pushing a sentencing reform bill. And he was livid and excoriating very publicly. Jeff Sessions said he was a friend, but if but he needs to know his place. And as attorney general, his job is to enforce the law. Uh, if he wanted to continue to create laws, uh, he should have stayed a member of Congress. He was talking about how Jeff Sessions was a controversial nominee and basically was like saying he should know his place. You know, for those of us who um, uh, know what Jeff Sessions is doing to the Justice Department and to justice more broadly, it was gratifying, of course, you know, a year too late. Uh, right. Last last week was his one-year anniversary, and um, he has managed— to do a lot of damage on on the civil rights front. But I will say I take, I've learned after uh, November 2016 that I have to take and understand success where where I can find it and to take some joys uh, here and there where we can find it. But that was, you know, it was a moment. You can text him whatever I told you so. <laughs> you, you came here from the Justice Department, as we mentioned, um, and you led the civil rights division there. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you stayed through the end of the Obama administration is that correct? Yeah, I was there from October 2014 until the day before the inauguration. So that means that you actually handed off the reins to the Trump team in some capacity. I did. I uh, they weren't, you know, physically waiting outside of my conference room, thank God. I got to I got to leave with a sense of dignity and purpose. Um, <laughs> but there's it was the the period between November and January were were difficult because it was very clear after such a vicious election and campaign what was going to happen mm-hmm. to the country and where it was going to go. And then when Jeff Sessions was nominated, 
I had been across my little dais at the U.S. in the U.S. Senate when uh, Jeff Sessions was a U.S. senator at an oversight hearing where he accused me of being an aggressive civil rights lawyer, God forbid. <laughs> um, and, you know, I continue to wear that with a badge of, uh, as a badge of pride. But I, you know, knowing Jeff Sessions as a U.S. senator, it was clear what kind of attorney general he would be, and he has turned out to be all those things and much more. Um, but it, I was there until the very end. I'm really proud of all of the work that we did to aggressively enforce our civil rights laws. I came at a time and served at a time where policing and race issues were front and center of Ferguson and Chicago and Baltimore and viral videos of, of police brutality that went viral, almost felt like on a weekly basis. Um, but also, you know, dealing with um, voting rights enforcement in states that had been emboldened by the United States Supreme Court to engage in, to pass voter suppression laws and having a Justice Department really stand up against that. Uh, a, a time where LGBTQ rights were front and center and the Justice Department uh, stood up for uh, LGBTQ folks and other folks in North Carolina against North Carolina's HB2 law. It was a time where there was just a lot of like electricity around civil rights mm -hmm. and civil rights enforcement. Um, and uh, it felt like a fairly... Uh, extreme case of whiplash to then go from that and then eight days into the Trump administration have the travel ban land the way that it did. Um, but that that work, I believe, while, you know, Sessions is busy kind of withdrawing guidances and undoing a lot of of what we did, I don't think anyone can erase it. And frankly, you can't change the, the culture impact, I would say, of what it meant for the Justice Department to stand up for transgender people. Uh, you can't change uh, the fact that criminal justice reform and the momentum for that is, 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 you know, continuing to move forward and that this Justice Department is just on the wrong side of history. And so we move on and we plow forward and and we fight on. I, I There's something important to that to, to me. I mean, a lot of it is me kind of reading back on the history because I was, you know, 17 at the time or something like that. But when when Al Gore lost or whatever, when, when George W. Bush became president um, – I don't feel like there was a sense among liberals writ large that that you know it was their moment that that their movements were on the rise, and then George W. Bush came into power and he sort of legendarily it was terrible uh, for the work of the civil rights division and the people who do that work in that office. And I've I've spoken um, in in different podcasts to people who joined DOJ in two thousand nine. And they talk about how horrible morale was that it had been completely destroyed among the career uh, civil rights staff and a lot of talent had been driven out. And I, I, I wonder if you think that the same thing is happening now. Is it basically just going to, you know, are the Trump years going to repeat uh, the Bush years in that way? Or is, the, is what you said, the fact that Trump entered office at a time when, when the, the culture of civil rights is – is kind of at a at a high point. Is that frustrating their efforts to do to the Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division what Bush did? So I, I think that it's important to note that it wasn't the the culture of civil rights was or civil rights enforcement was at a high point in terms of federal government mm -hmm. engagement. There were a lot of problems, obviously, and. You know, but it was a time also where the movement for Black Lives was mm -hmm. really forcing front and center a reckoning on race issues, um, and there was a sense of kind of burgeoning activism, but also that there was a federal government who, far from perfect, um, was engaged, at least trying to be engaged on the right side. And morale right now at the division is incredibly low. I mean, it is hard. These are mission-driven folks who, regardless of administration, seek to enforce our nation's civil rights laws. Congress enacts the laws, and the Justice Department Civil Rights Division enforces them. And to have an attorney general who disparages the work, who reverses positions that some of the career lawyers have been litigating through hearing after hearing and trial after trial for five years, for instance, in the challenge to Texas's uh, intentionally race, racially discriminatory voter ID law. You know, you've just, it, it has been a pretty brutalizing time for the Civil Rights Division. Some of the work is continuing uh, to, to, to move forward, 
um, relatively unaffected, but a lot of it has been really affected. And then to have a president who um, so clearly, uh, you know, makes the statements that he does and enacts the policies that he does, I think has been very painful for mission-driven career folks. I, what, what's interesting right now is that as people are leaving the civil rights division, they're not necessarily, the administration's not necessarily hiring people back. Mm. Um, the politicization of hiring was something that the Bush administration was investigated for. It was a very big and deep problem. And, you know, we've, we're only in now the beginning of year two of the administration. Um, a lot of the more nefarious, harder to detect stuff happens deeper into administrations. And so the question will be, will the advocates like the leadership conference, will the media continue to to pay attention to what's happening? I will say, I think the leadership conference certainly will. My hope is that the media will too, but, um, but, but, and the work has to continue. And I, my sense is that it, it, it is meaningful for folks inside government who do this work to see the advocacy that's happening and the, the, outcry to protect the traditional and fundamental role of the civil rights division. Um, I think that that actually means thing. It means something powerful to people inside. What will the, what do you imagine the rebuilding process will look like, right? Like just as a general matter, how do you convince the brightest lights in any endeavor? And that could be civil rights, but it could also be environmental protection. It can be diplomacy, whatever, to enter a career in public service when they have a like fairly good reason to believe that after a few years, new leadership will kind of stroll in and torch everything that you built, right? Like, it, like it, the what you just said about what's happening at Civil Rights Division is exactly what Sam Bagenstoss described to me that he found when he came in um, in 2009 and found the Justice Department Civil Rights Division in tatters, kind of. Um, can you, can you, easily rebuild when you have this seesawing of priorities and the treatment of the people who are there to do the work? I, I think you can. I, the fact is that civil rights lawyers, as I said, are deeply hopeful people. And um, and there were a lot of people that stayed in the Bush years who were then able to really have their work flourish in the Obama years in an administration that was uh, leaning much more forward into civil rights. I, there is no question that um, that this is going to take a toll on who's in the Justice Department. And, you know, for those of us on the outside, um, you know, it's great to see, you know, more and more talent on the outside doing this work coming from folks who know government. But I, I think that there is definitely uh, people in civil rights are drawn to the immense power and I don't mean that in like a power big P sense, but the immense power that enforcing civil rights with the federal government's imprimatur standing up as the United States of America to enforce civil rights has, uh, and that where there are opportunities to do so, serving in that way is going to continue to be a draw for really important talent um, to come back. There are going to be there are a lot of talented people that are staying, and I'm really proud of that. I think it's a highly personal decision for whether they feel like they can actually continue to do good and can continue to have some sense of mission and purpose that 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 is meaningful to them. Um, and my my hope, though, is that the work continues, and with or without the federal government's uh, you know energy behind it. There's so much that the Leadership Conference coalition and community is doing to fight for civil rights right now. And, you know, that energy is infectious and it will when the administration changes and there's an administration that really is supportive of the work of the Civil Rights Division. I have no doubt that really talented and excellent people are going to flood back. So the architect of all this, of the Trump Justice Program, is Jeff Sessions, as we've said, Um, and as we kind of hinted at Liberals were unable to prevent his confirmation, even if uh, Chuck Grassley is has some regrets now. Um, but now, uh, now that he's confirmed, I feel like there's a kind of ambivalence about his continued service among liberals because his successor wouldn't necessarily have to recuse himself or herself from the Mueller investigation, from Robert Mueller's investigation, um, and might therefore kneecap or even end the special counsel appointment. Um, do you worry about that? And just where do you fall on the basic question of the importance of him as a specific figure because of his recusal? I 
I think the Mueller investigation has to continue regardless of who the attorney general is, and it will be up to Congress to actually muscle up and make sure that that happens. And again, I think that is a, an issue of bipartisan concern. If there are, if there's tampering with the Mueller investigation, I think we all need to be out in the streets every in every community. And it's a hard thing because it feels really abstract, and yet. As a civil rights advocate, the rule of law has basically, and that the, the kind of constant fight for giving meaning to the rule of law has been pretty fundamental to the nation's progress on race and gender and sexual orientation and other issues. And but but that will just show that is really uh, that would be the high mark uh, or low mark, I should say, of an authoritarian regime would be for that to happen. Jeff Sessions, look, I. I there was a time just I can't remember seven or eight months ago when Trump was criticizing Jeff Sessions for uh, recusing himself. And yet that was absolutely the right thing that he did. He needed to recuse himself with those circumstances. Um, what's confusing right now is if Jeff Sessions were to be to step aside, you've got Rod Rosenstein, who's the deputy attorney general, uh, who has also been criticized by the president, and you don't have a number three anymore to take over who's confirmed. Um, There's just a a kind of crisis of leadership as well as a crisis of rule of law in the chain of command at the Justice Department on these issues. Um, I am somebody who really firmly believes that uh, the Mueller investigation is a very important thing that needs to be allowed to run its course and that the the kind of public denigration of it is a political effort to undermine um, to undermine the investigation and that there's already been a lot of damage done to the rule of law and the FBI and the Justice Department. But yeah. But if Sessions' recusal is a key component of what's protecting it now, but that means that the Justice Department in every other realm is led by him, is that is is that a good trade-off or would we be better off with an attorney general who obviously, I, I imagine, since Trump would be nominating that person, uh, you know, uh, you would not share a lot of views in common with them, but might not be quite as bad on like historically and on on every issue as, as Sessions happens to be. Yeah, I don't – I actually don't know whether it naturally reverts to the attorney general now that the deputy attorney general has been overseeing this investigation, even if the attorney general changes. Um, the, the fear has always been that, that a unrecused attorney general would assume the, the – that Rod Rosenstein is acting attorney general for that investigation. He no longer yeah, will be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you're going to – we would have to be in a situation like Saturday Night Massacre as they call for those conditions to get set up. And then I think we have – we're at a crisis point on these issues. Um, uh, so long as Rod Rosenstein is there, he is overseeing this investigation. If session gets pushed to one side, I think it, it is hard for me to imagine that even this Congress isn't going to – have some serious problems with trying to confirm another attorney general. Um, and I, you know, I think one of the things that it seems like that might have saved Sessions was some of those co-senators saying, telling the, the president that they weren't going to confirm right. anyone new if he tried to fire Sessions. Um, and and so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens and how all of this plays out. But, um, you know, again, I think there have already been there has already been a lot of uh, a lot of kind of very bizarre and untoward blurring of the lines when you had just a couple of weeks ago the head of one of the DOJ components standing at the podium of the White House speaking about uh, an investigation and an issue like that is just I mean it's very wonky DC but that is just not something that is normal and mm-hmm. and should be happening and over and over again we're seeing these kinds of things these kinds of things happen and it's part of kind of, I think, the charge for for people who understand what these lines are and also for the advocacy community is to, to make sure that none of this becomes normal for this country, that we are able to continuously recognize how abnormal and um, and awful some of these things are and to be able to consistently push back. It's when we stop to do stop doing that and we kind of ex- start to accept these things um, without protests that I get really worried. And right now, I think we aren't there yet, but there's a real danger of that happening, uh, you know, over time. 
Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Bespoke Post. Bespoke Post. For guys that love discovering cool-ass new products that you can't find anywhere, mm. I need to tell you about BespokePost.com. I love ass products. Wait, what? <laughs> Curse and copy here. <laughs> oh, I see. Cool. I saw. I thought it was cool ass product. No, I see. I get it. Keep going. <laughs> Bespoke Post is a subscription club that offers monthly theme boxes curated from unique and upcoming brands around the world. They have a variety of box themes, style, grooming, cooking, drinking, travel. They cover all the bases. Mm-hmm. So they offered us a free box. Mm-hmm. I went with the drinking one. And I got this whole cocktail set. That's cool. Got a cocktail shaker, or stir, all the kind of things you need to make. I finally made martinis. Oh, yeah. Emily had tried to make one. She failed. Is that why you were making martinis on Friday? I was. When you were not you. going to dinner with John? That's right. Before <laughs> I, before we saw you and Hannah, we made ourselves a martini at home. Because wait, wait, now hold I can on, do hold this. On, hold on, this. hold on, hold on. Tell me about the martini. <laughs> I want you to tell me about the ingredients, and then we're going to talk about whether or not you made a martini. Well, so uh, Emily likes dirty martinis, as do I. Do you so, like, do you, so I assume when you call it a martini, you're using gin. No, she likes vodka. So she likes a, a dirty vodka martini. Did you have vermouth? Yes. Okay. And, uh, and olive juice. Okay. And vodka. Okay. So you made a dirty vodka martini. Okay. That's right. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Five, ounces, just, five ounces of vodka, two ounces of vermouth, two ounces of olive juice. You stir it in, the, in the, what I got from Bespoke Post, the company whose ad we're reading right now. You know, we shook it up, you know, and then I put, some, and then I put a couple olives in there, and then that was it. His that. words said, okay, correct, but his tone said, yeah, actually. No, 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 yeah, no, no, no. Some no, people no, no, like no. gin martinis that aren't as dirty. That's fine. No, 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 to no, each, no. To each no, no, his no. own, to each her I own. Just, I just want to maintain a certain level of standards here. A martini <laughs> is gin. A vodka martini is, is a vodka martini. Standard? <laughs> a yeah. gin, a mar- you don't have to, it's annoying that you can't just say martini because you usually be able to just say martini and you knew what you were going to get. Now you're like martini. You, say extra words. It's a pain. He's All a I'm real, saying he's is- He's a real ass product hole. <laughs> <laughs> All right, finish the finish the ad. Finish the ad. I got a cool bag, John. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Who gives a shit? Finish the ad. <laughs> How do I get this thing to, you were talking about? To receive 20% off your first subscription box, go to bespokepost.com and enter promo code CONVOS at checkout. That's 20% off your first box at B-E-S-P-O-K-E post.com. Promo code CONVOS, Bespoke Post, theme boxes for guys that give a damn. It costs forty five bucks. You get seventy bucks worth of stuff. It's, it's a good great. Deal. It's it's a all of the different boxes are very cool. It was hard picking just one. Go get some. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Jeff Sessions has been under attack by his boss for recusing himself. Rod Rosenstein is under attack by his boss for uh, for allowing the investigation to continue, I suppose. I don't know. Um, Rachel Brand, as you mentioned, the number three at Justice Department, has decided to step aside reportedly because she worried uh, that if if Rosenstein were were pushed away, pushed aside, that she would end up having to oversee that investigation and didn't want that impossible job. And then in the FBI, you know, Trump fired Jim Comey and uh, there's been a lot of churn at the, at the leadership level of the FBI. How would you describe like what's happening between Trump and the DOJ and the FBI? Like what Trump's aims are as you see them, not just with respect to this investigation, but obviously that's a big part of it. And how effective has he been at meeting those goals? I don't know to what extent this was an intentional uh, kind of progression. There's a part of me that thinks that when he came in, he really thought he was the boss of the Justice Department. You know, he's president of the United States. And uh, but now, I mean, these many months in, he knows what the norms are and doesn't seem to much care uh, and is continuing to tweet about you know, and and denigrate the the FBI, denigrate the career men and women who serve as Justice Department prosecutors. And so this is a situation where over and over again, and it's not just relegated to this bucket of issues, when you have somebody who doesn't seem cabined in by by norms, and for some folks and for some in his base, this is a very attractive thing about him. But 
you know, you've got somebody who continuously brings us to new lows. Uh, you know, there are times where I'm like, oh, God, this has got to be the lowest we'll go. And then, you know, a few <laughs> hours later or the next day, there's something else that that takes us there. Um, that's, you know, I think that that's part of the this whole this whole thing. I think he my understanding is that there is a there are a lot of people who aren't occupying leadership positions in the Justice Department. There is an agenda that is decidedly feeding uh, feeding a white base that is racialized. It's it's in immigration and it's in voting rights. It's uh, it's affecting almost every executive agency there is. It's it's a anti LGBT agenda as well. This this is this is part of the kind of character of the administration. And the question will be. Um, what is going to happen in the 2018 elections? What happens in 2020? And how do people stand up for for their values if they, like me, are disgusted with um, with what is coming out of this administration? In, in in George W. Bush's first term, he he nearly lost like the entire senior leadership of his Justice Department over you know a very serious attempt to breach the wall between the White House. And the DOJ, um, but compared to like how shamelessly Trump goes about breaching that wall, Bush looks quaint almost. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> compared and, to that, and, yeah. And so, I mean, I, without backseat driving, anyone who who work, like should more people be resigning? Um, like, are are the, are the people who aren't resigning are they sticking around because you know they think that Trump is sort of like a lasting danger to the institution and they want to be a, a bulwark to the extent that they can be? against it? Or are they complicit? Like there's somebody like Rod Rosenstein will go out and give a speech and talk about how Trump you know, really respects the rule of law. And it's like, he, I mean, he can't really believe that. Right. But I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I can't get into people's minds on this. I will say the, the level of turnover in the administration among his appointees is really high. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Washington Post did this, like, you know, this moving images of all the people that have resigned um, in the first year. And it is a, it's a very big number. Um, I, I think that there, there are a lot of leadership positions in the Justice Department that haven't been filled. They're filled by acting folks. And so I don't even know how many people are left to resign, to be mm-hmm. honest. I mean, certainly <laughs> there are people who are in political appointed positions that are there. And, you know, I think some of them genuinely may think, God, we have to be here because we've got to be kind of the, you know, the the folks protecting the institution. I think there are folks in the military who may be taking that attitude and approach too. Um, there are other people who, uh, you know, are true believers. I'm in Jeff Sessions. What's been really distressing, I think, about seeing Jeff Sessions at work is he's clearly beleaguered and clearly does not have the love of the president. And you can see these obvious moments where he isn't standing up for the career men and women in the Justice Department or the FBI and issuing these press releases that are sycophantic to the president. The most recent vivid memory that I have of one of those is where Jeff Sessions in the aftermath of the Nunes memo, uh, you know, in light of all the media and everyone saying, wait, this is a complete dud. Like what is, you know, what was all the hoopla? Jeff Sessions issues this press release that basically says, uh, you know, no institution is imperfect and we'll get to the bottom of this, validating um, Trump's uh, lifting up and kind of fomenting um, drama around the release of this memo. So, you know, again, there are a lot of people leaving his administration. um, And the question is whether good people will come in to fill it or whether people just feel like this is a lost, a lost endeavor. But there are and continue to be true believers in uh, in his administration, too. And folks like Betsy DeVos running the education department as she's dismantling that department and other such folks are continuing to do um, to carry out his agenda. I mean, I guess it's it's there's just got to be some inherent difference between working in an administration where there is some, um, you know, like respect for institutions, commitment to the rule of law, that what your what your line for resigning either in protest or because, you know, you're unhappy with the policy direction of of the administration is different than when you think that the administration is trying to break the institution, right? That, you know, you get these reports out of 
you know, like in the media about, uh, you know, Chris Ray, the FBI director has been on the job for a few months and has already had to apparently like wield the threat of resignation to leverage yeah. better behavior yeah. out of the white house. Um, and I, you know, having never served in, in a, a government role, I, I don't know what the appropriate way to, to, to gauge when to use that leverage is, but it does seem like, you know, a, a, a good rule of thumb would be like, I will not go further than this line. Yeah. The thing is, is I think people have, they draw that line in different places for mm-hmm. different reasons. And, uh, and you know, when career folks in the civil rights division, for instance, leave the civil rights division, they don't have as much of a platform the way that Sally Yates did when she left right. to really make a big noise and stink about it. They may be leaving for principled reasons, but that they're not going to have the same platform. Uh, and, but there are folks in very high up positions in these in these um, agencies who do, and some of them are making noise on the way out. Some of them are just saying, "I can't have anything more with it, and I'm going to submit my letter of resignation and give a personal reason as to why I'm leaving." Uh, and I, you know, again, it's it's a highly personalized decision, but I think it's hard to fathom the number of people that have left this administration from political appointed positions um, and not see you know, something more systemic going on with regards to, to, to feelings about where the president's going. Did you and your service ever approach a point or, or near a point where you thought, you know, I don't, I don't believe this or I can't abide this any longer and I might have to resign over four years or whatever. And uh, so I was at the justice department for two and a half two years and, a half. and I, you know, let me plead the fifth on that. Now I, <laughs> there are, there are moments uh, that, where there's a lot of frustration. It's a big bureaucracy. You believe that there's one outcome and there's a lot of equities and you're fighting for it and fighting for it. And if the attorney general makes a different decision, um, you know, it hurts and it stinks. And But I I knew fundamentally where my bosses were on these issues. And it wasn't, there weren't these moments where it was like some big principle some big principled disagreement. Right. Um, this is just, I mean, I can't even Night imagine what it must be like to serve this administration in institutions that are consistently disrespected. Uh, and that's a, that's just a whole different ballgame. We sort of divided this conversation up to this point um, between talking about civil rights fights, setbacks that kind of stem from uh, an era of, like conservative and Republican party rule. Um, and then, and then we also talked about, you know, things that seem a bit more specific to Trump, his efforts to pervert this, uh, Russia investigation. Um, um, but he has, you know, he has buy-in from nearly the entire Republican congressional party and, you know, it, like kind of adjacent to, or, or, or tangential to the Mueller investigation. They tend to support his calls, for investigations of or prosecutions of political enemies. Um, and I'd like to hear you talk, if you have any thoughts about this, about whether these two, the two halves of this conversation that that we're recording are connected, the kind of more broad-based assault on voting rights, on civil rights, and this kind of seemingly more, more Trump-specific assault on, on institutions. Are they... I absolutely think they're connected. The civil rights progress has been made in this country through the very democratic institutions that are most at risk right now, through the courts, through political and economic empowerment. And, you know, right now the census, which is something the leadership conference is really hard at work to to try to protect, is at stake. You have a Jeff Sessions that's trying to introduce a citizenship status question into the into the census that would have a broad chilling effect and probably sabotage and tank the census um, in voting rights. Like these are these are all issues that are you know core to our democratic norms and to the fight for civil rights. And I think they are absolutely connected. It's why for a lot of civil rights advocates watching the denigration of the norms and of the rule of law feel particularly dangerous because of what they could mean for the protection of the most marginalized and vulnerable among us. And so, um, you know, hand in hand, 
this stuff is is absolutely connected. So what's the remedy in America if, if like most of the country is committed to values like equality and empiricism and democracy and they support these institutions, but a big minority, like big enough obviously to win important elections, like reject those things and sort of see everything as an instrument of power? Um, how should neutral institutions address that and, and can they – can they survive a fight that's sort of between them that agree to a prefigured set of rules and their antagonists who don't? Well, throughout our history, there has been nothing inevitable about any of our democratic institutions, about our norms, about civil rights progress. The protection and livelihood of these institutions has been because people have rolled up their sleeves, they've taken to the streets, they've gone to court, they've been in the media, they're organizing to to fight back. And I think people need to vote, they need to organize, they they need to to show up. Uh, and that's, you know, Trump didn't win the popular vote, and there's no point of rehashing this history, but we also didn't have high voter turnout in 2016. Uh, and we have seen in, you know, elections where, as I said, like in Virginia, where Voters of color in particular turned out in really high numbers to reject Gillespie's efforts at mimicking Trump's electoral, racial, dog whistle politics. And that's – folks need to continue to organize. I mean, this the, – the work of democracy and the work of trying to, to, to close the gap between America's ideals and people's actual lived experiences has been an ongoing project for this country that has required – really hard work, sometimes, uh, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, and literally blood in the civil rights movement on these issues. And we are at a moment that is going to be consequential for the next many years in those countries. I just had today a veteran civil rights leader tell me that she wants to sit down with me and, and talk to me about the history of 1968 because she sees so many parallels between this moment in time in our history in 1968 and that it was a real wake-up call for for people in this country to to kind of pick themselves up and get to work. And I think we are at that place now. Uh, and it's concrete work. It's not, you know, it, it, it's actually, you know, about local politics. It's about pushing and voting and local. Like, there's no race that people should not be engaged in. Um and it's about protecting our our values. And none of this is going to kind of happen without a vigilant media. It's not going to happen without organized uh, communities like really pushing back. I'm glad you mentioned the media because, you know, the activism is happening. The voting, knock on wood, hopefully will, will also be happening. But yet you have a movement and now, now it's running the country that when they're unhappy with uh, what a neutral institution like the FBI is doing, they attack the FBI. Uh, for for being, you know, a hub of conspiracy and inequity, whatever. When the media is reporting facts that are, um, you know, not to the liking of the president or the party in power, the media gets attacked as, you know, biased, fake, whatever. When scientists, you know, um, issue reports about anything from climate change to the toxicity of certain chemicals, the scientists get attacked. And I think as institutions, they're, they're kind of built to not push back against any partisan criticism because they want to seem above that fray. But setting aside the fact that, you know, it is a party, it is a partisan thing, the, the, that fight is now very one-sided, right? Because you have, you have the, the powerful actors engaging it uh, in one end and the people being attacked, you know, are sort of voiceless. They they don't have any reflexive way to respond. And do institutions like the ones I named and others, should they be rethinking what it means to try to be effective institutions in an environment like this, where such a powerful political faction has decided that there needs to be a war on neutral authority? I think that there, that this is not a time when, well, let me, let me start that again. I, I don't see people as being powerless against us or institutions as being powerless. 
And I think you're right. It has been tricky for a lot of institutions that try traditionally to stay out of the political fray uh, to figure out how to deal with this moment. And But I will also say that this is no time to be on the sidelines uh, and to be thinking that by staying silent, you're being neutral. I think by staying silent at this point, you're, we are at risk of being complicit with a war on facts, a war on science, a war on civil rights and inclusion. And i that's where leadership matters. I mean, there are people at all of these institutions who, yes, may very well risk their jobs by speaking out, but but some of this is just so crazy uh, that um, that it's hard to see how leaders can run institutions and not push back on some of the most crazy aspects of what's happening right now. And, you know, there are people who are better situated to do that. And often those times are leaders who may be a little bit more privileged than some of the folks in their institutions. And I think that's where the burden does fall. That's This is what leadership is about. It often requires standing up and going against the grain and, and, and being able to speak out about what's not normal and what's not okay. And if we don't do that, then I think all is lost. Well, hopefully uh, some of the leaders of those institutions are are listening to this episode. Well, uh, and I think, you know, and, and some of those leaders of those institutions are beginning to speak out, and that's making a difference. Vanita Gupta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and tune in for our next episode of Crooked Conversations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.